Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. sat in my car cleaning this and cleaning that and checking out the whole deal. I went to the little mirror in the, in the top there, the little rear view mirror. I got the thing, you know, it's, it's quite small compared to the windscreen. You need to know what has gone on in your life previously. You need to know what's behind you. There just could be one of those nice pretty cars with the flashing lights on it, you know, the kind that you love to see. Especially when you waves at you and goes like that. Or there could be an ambulance or a fire truck coming that you need to get out of the way of quickly. You need to see what's behind, but you can't dwell there. You need to look out the bigger picture out of the bigger window, look forward to where you're going because that's where your future is. That's where your tomorrow is. That's where you are, that's where you are going. If you continually stare into the little picture, into the little mirror, you will crash. You will crash and burn. We need to get over being afraid and look out the big window. The big window seems to take in much more than what we need. It not only takes in the road down, the, down in front of us and the, and the lines and the lights and the things that are there, it also takes in the side areas as well. You can see this way into houses or that way into houses or, or paddocks or wherever you may be. The vision out of the front window will be bigger than what you can fully consume because God wants you to grow and mature and become a bigger person than what you are. So my question to you today is that, which way are you looking? Are you looking forward or are you looking behind? There's a great, ver- great line in that song we just sang, the last song we sang. It says, I, I, I'm over time of regrets for things in the past. If something in the past has still got hold of you, You need to cut it adrift. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to set it right. You need to do something about it so that you are no longer hurled from behind, but you are released to go forward. That's your way out. That's your way forward. That's your direction. You're headed in and you need to be ready to do that. I want to look at a man. I I just, when I read the Bible, there are so many questions that come to mind. And it just, there's nothing, even the genealogy lists are not boring. They were real people who had real babies, who were in a, who were in a plan of God. That's why they're in the book. Because something was being worked out. There is a, a ribbon of salvation being worked out and you need to, Take an interest. And I want you to take an interest in this guy this morning as we turn to him. So from Judges in chapter 3, he's, a, he's following a man 
because there's a series of judges recorded in chapter, in chapter 3 of the book of Judges. And um, the previous judge's name was Tola, and he was the son of Dodo. That's not a great start, is it? Son of Dodo. But anyway, we're not talking about him. We're talking about the one that comes after him. In verse 3, it says, After him, Jair the Gileadite arose and judged Israel for 22 years. That's not a bad sort of innings. 22 years. Prime ministers wouldn't mind that sort of time, um, ruling and leading Australia. But 22 years was his period of judgeship over Israel and the part that he was living in. He had 30 sons. Now, I'm not sure whether he had one wife or maybe had two or three, as was perhaps the custom. I'm not sure. But he had 30 sons. The 30 sons rode on 30 donkeys. And that's not an old name for a new car or a new name for an old car. They rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth Jair to this day. Now verse 5 says this, Jair died and was buried at Kamon. They're not even sure where Kamon is today. Not sure where that's located. They still know where Gilead is. And these cities, these are really Havoth Jair, are tent cities. They are named Jair because they were taken and, and taken by conflict. And he won them. He won them in battle. And then he began to preside over them, care for them, keep them, bring hope and safety to them as he judged their activities. But there's a period of time between when he grew up and when he was having his family and when he went into battle for these groups and then he went into judgeship over them. So where his 30 sons came from, we're not exactly sure. No commentators know, there's nothing else in Scripture about them. That's not a bad effort, 30 sons. The first key that gives it away a little bit is they rode on 30 donkeys. Now, you had to have a little bit of wherewithal if you were going to own a donkey. It was a bit of a status symbol. It wasn't like driving a Volkswagen. It was like driving a Lexus. You had a Lexus to take you where you were going. It meant that you were someone of importance, someone of note, someone that should be listened to or heard out at least. And then these 30 sons on 30 donkeys ruled over 30 cities which were the cities that Jair and his conquests had released from their enemies, Ammon. And they, of course, were a constant enemy, but under Jair's judgeship, these 30 cities remained free from intrusion and captivity by Ammon. And as I read this, I thought, wow, what did this man teach his sons that made his sons acceptable and respected by the townships, people. What did he impart to them? What values did he instill into them so that they weren't just boys copying dad's values, but they were boys who owned those values and made them their own? And that's the important part. We're not, we're not, he wasn't just making rubber stamps, but he was making young men 
who gained wisdom, who gained maturity, who put it into place, who knew how to put it into place because they had owned it and made it their own. You can teach someone how to be a motor mechanic, just screw up a bolt this way, those bolts go that way, this bolt goes this way, and it's easy to tell which way they go. It depends whether they've got a left-hand or right-hand thread. You, you, can, you can discover these things, but until you own that information, until you understand it, until you can hold a bolt up and look at the thread and say, that's a left-hand thread, you've got to turn that the opposite way. You could try and do up a bolt when you're actually trying to undo it and never get it tight. It won't start in the thread. Or if you do it the other way, you could over-tighten it and do something worse. You can snap it off and then you have to drill that bolt out of the bolt hole in order to fit a new unbroken bolt in that place. You have to own the information. You have to own the characteristic. You have to own what you're being taught in order for you to put it into place. If you don't own it, you'll just simply... You'll just simply repeat something, but when the situation arises, you won't know how to apply what you know to that situation. That's where we're getting to. So this man had 30 sons. Now, we have three sons. My wife and I have three sons, and then for my wife's sake, no, for us, we had a lovely daughter. But we have three sons. Those three boys are quite different from each other. There's one son that he's just, he's just like a pyramid. You bounce on the side of him, he just bounces you off. You've got to really make sure he knows that you mean business and are serious for him to get the message. We have another son, you look at him in the eye and say, that's not acceptable. You could then, and possibly even now, reduce him to tears just by the sternness of your voice and the look in your eye. Then we have another son who's different again. And he's somewhere between those two extremes. Sometimes he needed a real thump. Other times he needed just a voice, just a look. So this man learnt his sons. This man looked inside of his sons, he saw their strengths and their weaknesses and he began to recognise what he needed to deal with in order to make them the kind of men they would need to be. Then these sons respected their father because they saw who he was, they saw him as a man of dignity and integrity and they said, that's the way to go. We can see that your lifestyle is leading somewhere. We can see that you are a man who's, who's living in a good way. We will follow you. You, we will pursue you. We will take on board what you teach us. It's always a two-way street. You can have the best teacher, but if you're going to twiddle your thumbs and waste your time, you aren't going to learn anything. And if I hear someone here saying this, Oh yeah, but you don't know what my teacher was like. You don't know what my dad was like. I never had, a, I never had that sort of opening. The moment you recognised that was, there was some sort of lack in your training, you had the place to go to learn something. It may have needed a bit more research on your part. Instead of a, a good father training you in those things, you may have had to go and find it in a book or you may have had to go and find it in another friend or in another teacher somewhere. But the moment you recognised you had a lack, you, had a, you were on a mission 
to go and find out what it was. So please don't come to me and say, I had this really bad. I'm not being hard there. I'm not being hard-hearted, but I am being tough-loved. And you need that. We all need that. We all need that because we are human. And so this man led these 30 sons. They rode on 30 donkeys as a symbol or as a place of their status. And the part that really intrigued me is for 22 years, for 22 years, they had peace. And if I read into it correctly, they had hope. They had a security. They had a future. They knew where they were going. They were able to look out the big screen. They weren't just camped there looking in the little mirror. They were looking at the big screen at what life was holding in front of them. So I want to just look at some of these things just for a few moments with you. I want to make some observations. I want to talk about image. I want to talk about attitudes. And I want to talk about actions. Image, attitudes, and actions. They pursued the Father's image. They took on his likeness. They saw what he did. I understood why he did it. And then they involved themselves in replicating that style of activity. They heard his corrections. They heard his adjustments to their lives. And they were just clever enough to realise that there would be a reward for it and that they, they would be held in high esteem. In pursuing the image or likeness of their father, they came into benefit, they came into growth, they came into maturity, they came into well-being, and they came into leaving an investment for others. All those things we need to be doing. Attitudes. Their attitudes were such that they learnt respect, respect for their father, and without saying respect for their mother, respect for their family. You cannot, you cannot respect someone out there if you don't respect someone close at home. It's false respect, because until you learn how to respect someone who may sometimes rub you up the wrong way, until you learn how to respect that person, you cannot really offer a genuine and full-hearted respect for someone whom you don't know. You're just playing. If you think you can respect them, you're just teasing yourself. They respect honour, to give honour. Say, you did really well. You did that better than me. But I want you to know, I'm watching you closely because I'm on a pursuit of doing that as good as you. You see, the one thing I wanted for my sons is for whatever I achieved, I wanted them to achieve better. I am not ashamed by my sons achieving past where I've got to. I am glad about that. And anything that I can do to foster that, to help that, to support that, to encourage it, that's what I want to do. I want my sons to do better than what I've done. I want my daughter to do better than what I've done. She won't do it in the same field or the same expertise, but I, I want them all. I want our children to do better than what we have done. I'm not really loving them if I don't do that for them. Because love says, I want the very best for you. That's the definition of love you have to operate on. 
Love is not just warm feelings. Love is just not, not just infatuation for the moment. Love is saying, whatever it costs me, I'm going to pay that price because I want you to be better than I am. Isn't that what Jesus did? He paid the ultimate price so that we could be better than what we were. And because they took on board these attitudes of respect and honour and wisdom, and they were, they were lived out in their lives, they weren't just taken on as a coat, they were actually intrinsically involved in their nature and they lived it out. They were respected. And because they were respected, they brought responsibility as good judges. They cared for the people in the towns. They brought peace and hope and safety and the townspeople were safe. So what does all this mean to us? The first thing I want to ask you is in whose image are you made? Well, we can say this, that there's a little bit of my father in me, my earthly father. I was uh, standing somewhere one day where all men have to go occasionally, and this gentleman pulled up beside me. This gentleman pulled up beside me, he said, how you going, Alan? And I didn't know whether to feel hurt or encouraged. How you going, Alan? I said, uh, my name's Paul. You're talking to my father. You've either just made him very young or me very old. I'll, I'll take it that you've made him very young rather than made me very old. You see, we have, that, we have our earthly image, but the image that really counts in your life and my life is the image of our heavenly Father. That's the stamp that really needs to be clearly seen in our lives. It's the image of him who made us and loves us and gave up his son for us, that we could be his children and his family. We are, by likeness of image, we are a three-part being. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and we are spirit, soul, and body. There's the spirit that's in me that's given by God. If you don't have the spirit, you won't have life. Can I say that this way? That no one here is a mistake. Because if you didn't have the Spirit given by God, you wouldn't have life. All you would have had was a couple in a car somewhere doing something together. But there would have been no life from it except the Spirit of God came into that relationship at that moment because He wanted you born. So his eye is looking over you. He is looking at you. He is looking at you. Because he loves you. He loves you. So firstly, we're spirit. Then we're, let's call it soul, which is personality, which, which embraces our minds and our will and our temperament. It embraces those things. How many of you have ever said, to young men, men, I hope from time to time you say this, men, I love you with my 
seven and a half cubic foot pump, blood pump. Did you say that to your dearly beloved that's, that's, uh, that's pulsing at about 65 pulses per minute? You didn't say that. You said, darling, I love you with all my heart. If you just look at the mechanics of that, your heart is just simply a pump. But somewhere inside of you, somewhere slightly differently to that, somewhere in you that's, that's, that's more spirit than it, is, that it is something made, is a part of you that is your heart. A part of you that is the real you. The part of you that is your personality. The part of you that makes you unique from any other person that's ever been alive and will ever live be after this moment. And that personality and that spirit are attached, are one. And then they live in a physical body. They live in this taxi. Now, as you can plainly see, I'm built for comfort. There are some others in this church that are built for speed, but I'm built for comfort. I promise you, there's a lot more room up here with me than there is in some of those sleek little streamlined bodies around this place. I took a little sweetheart of a girl out once. She only came to about there. And I just brought her back home and I was about to send her off inside and she said, you're going to give me a kiss goodnight? And so I, well, I had a motorbike in those days and she'd been riding on the back. And so I got off my motorbike and so her head came to about here. I put my arms around her because she was such a tiny little dot. I thought, if I give this girl about three more pounds of pressure, I'll snap her in half. <laughs> I thought, this, this would never work. This would never work. So, Benno, I admire you for taking on the challenge of Elise. I'm not going to go any further before I get into trouble. So, I'm made in the image of God. I can look at an image and I've just got a mirror here which maybe some can see. I think it came off of a, a little compact of some stage at some stage of its life. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It's got Astralis written on the top of it there so who knows where it came from. But you know, when I look at this, I can see... Oh, there I am. Oh, wow, look at that. Hang on, let's get close. Oh, how's the nose looking? Mm, a bit bright. I can only see part of myself. I, hang on, go down, down, down. Oh, that's it. Oh, shoes way down there. I, I'll get out of perspective. I'll get out of shape. I, I can only, I can only, I can, yeah, I didn't do my wake up too well this morning. It won't look good. Sorry about that microphone then, PA people. 
It's no good looking at an image of yourself and comparing yourself to yourself because you're not going to go anywhere. There's no truth there. There's, oh, there I am, yes, but where can I go? I can't lift myself up by pulling on my own shoelaces. If I want someone to tell me who I am, to show me where I'm going to go, to tell me what my possibilities are, to give me a hope for the future of plans for my welfare. If I want that, I need to go to this and look in here and see what this says about who I am and what my potential really is. That I'm made in the image of God, that I have His stamp upon me. And Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says that I am His workmanship. I can see that's a surprise to some of you. But I am. I am His workmanship. You are His workmanship. Created, the Bible says, created for His good pleasure. To do the works that He foreordained for us to do. So God knows you. There there is a plan, a purpose, and a method for you exactly. There's a sense of destiny and purpose for every one of us. And if you are just looking at a mirror of yourself, wow. If you become consumed with your own image, you're not looking at the front window, you're looking backwards at yourself. You drive a car backwards. And unless you're clever driving on mirrors, you will crash. You drive a car forwards looking backwards, I promise you, you'll crash. We need to go to the right source to get the right information about what God says about us if we are going to develop into the people that God wants us to be. So our attitudes then, God is working on our attitudes as well. So it's not only our image, it's our attitudes. Our attitudes. Sometimes when we see something in another person, we get tempted to want to correct it. Have you noticed that? You can more easily see the, 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 the same problem in another person that sometimes you have in your own life that maybe or maybe not you've dealt with too well. And so uh, you, um, you, you want to correct it. I'll go across there and help them. Actually, I'll go across there and make myself feel better by telling them how bad they are. But what we say is, I'm coming to speak the truth to you in love. And we steal that quote from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. But the moment we invoke that word love, which is God's love, we set our actions on a different footing, on a different level. God's love says, I will do 
whatever I have to do for you, no matter what the cost, in order to change you and improve you. Now, unless you have that attitude when you go to tell someone something, just button your lip. If you haven't got that problem solved in your own life, don't tell someone else how to solve it in theirs. Find someone who has solved it and find the answer. Then you can both solve your own question and problem and you can help someone else afterwards. Jesus said it, nah, just slightly different. He said, uh, some of you who want to tell others how to be better, you want to remove the splinter. Can anyone see that back there? You, you can? Yeah, I thought you probably could. Oh, that's too big. Let's go for something a bit smaller. No, that's too big too. You can all see that. Can you see that splinter? How many of you had a splinter under your nail? Oh, one little splinter under your nail wrecks your whole body. Even your big toe hurts. Oh, you can't see that. Let me get my huge magnifying glass out. Can you see better now? And Jesus said, Jesus said, how dare you try and remove the splinter from someone else when you've got a beam in your own eye? How can you see properly? Would any of you go to a one-eyed surgeon to have surgery? I think not. Cyclops, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Come over here and I'll just beat you into shape. <laughs> when you're going somewhere because you want someone to take care of you, you want them to have good vision. You want them to see what they're doing. You don't want them with a, something in their eye. Jesus said, don't try and remove the speck or the splinter from someone's eye when you've got a beam in your own. A beam. A beam is a noisy thing. Do you want to clang like that? You see, we don't, we don't realise at times when we offer advice to people and we haven't got it worked out ourselves that we actually sound like that. You don't sound gentle. You don't sound helpful. You don't sound cool. You don't sound nice. You don't sound like you're really love. You, you sound like you're all out of place. And you beat and batter that other person rather than bring them help or hope. So our actions, our actions. We have this light in us given to us by God that we need to allow to shine out. Jesus said again in Matthew 5, he said, if I've put a light in you, he said, what about you people? When you, have a, when you light a candle, you don't put the candle out on the middle of the table and then put a bowl or a pitcher or something over it and cover it all up. You don't do that. He said, you expose the light because the light gives 
an open view. The light gives truth. The light gives the size, the proportion. The light shows you the perspective that you need to adapt and to use and to, and to be able to resolve the situation. Read a book, do your knitting, whatever it is you might be doing, just to find your way around your kitchen without stubbing your toe on the leg of the chair. Whatever it is, let your light shine. So in verse 16, he says in the same way, let your light so shine before men that they, the men, might see your good works. The Bible just said that we can do good works. Did you hear that? That they might see your good works and slap you on the back, bring accolades to you, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So when you and I do something in our lives that's of God, that's good, that, that brings about good results, whether it's a leadership or help or cooking for a neighbor or speaking to someone or encouraging someone, whatever it might be, when you and I do something good, people should see the authorship of that good work I say, wow, I know he's good, but that's way beyond him. That's from God. That's born of God. That, I, I can see that his life is committed to, uh, submitted to God because I can see God's fingerprints all over that good thing that's just been done. People could see God's fingerprints all over Jair's son's. They could see some stamp in them. And whether you want to title this message today, leaving, living a good testimony, leaving a good testimony, or what fathers and sons or what fathers or parents should do for their children, whatever way you want to title it up, it doesn't really fuss me. The thing is that we need to be learning from God so that we can learn and teach others. Can, I have, the, can we have the band come and join us, please, as we're going to move into communion in a moment or two? I want to bring this to a, a final conclusion with you this morning. It says there is no greater vision for us to have than of God himself. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 say this, that it is our reasonable sacrifice it's our reasonable sacrifice. In other words, we, it can be reasoned out. It can be thought through. It's, it's, not, it's not mechanical. It's not learned. It's just you will do it or else. It's not like that. There's, it's reasonable. Just like in the prophet Isaiah, where he said, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are red like crimson, they'll be as white as the snow. It's our reasonable service to come and present our lives and worship God. And whatever we do, at the, at the workbench, if we're a shop assistant, shop counter, amongst neighbourhoods in our community services, whatever we do, we, we, need, to, we need to be honouring God. And in that, we are keeping God 
as the big vision, the big picture in our life. There is no greater vision than God himself. There's no greater purpose than living in his promise. And there's no greater reward than that which God has reserved for his own. We don't need a great reward here. I don't need the most expensive car. I don't need my own jet. Living down at Seaford, a helicopter would be good, but I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. I recently received my pension card. Can you imagine 45 years of work paying taxes and I get a little cardboard card? Just a little bit thicker than stiff paper. And that's the reward. I looked at it, I, I thought, what is going on here? You obviously don't expect us to be around real long. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around and make you pay for that. <laughs> Fancy a cardboard card. That's all the government of this world can give me. And God says, well, I have a reward for you. I have a crown of life. I have a crown of inheritance. I have a crown of integrity for you. I have a crown for you like you won't believe. God has a reward for those. Would you begin to bring those elements to us, please? It's a sweet thing here that we do. Thank you. You treated that so gently and nice after I threw it away. God bless you. Thank you. In John, Jesus reached to the table and he took the third cup or the third filling of the cup which was, all, which was always called Messiah's cup and he took it and he lifted it up he said, this is my cup. Wow. Ever since the time of Moses that was Messiah's cup and Jesus picks it up and says, this is my cup. says, this is my blood that's going to be shed for the remission of your sins. And he reached over to the bread, the flat bread on the table, and he tore it off. He says, this bread, this bread speaks to you of my body, which is about to be broken for you. He said, do this. Well, Paul said, do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took a piece of the bread because they were saying, who was going to betray you, Jesus? And he dipped it. And he produced what's called the sop. It's the bread soaked with what they were drinking or eating. And Jesus said, it's the one to whom I give the sop 
But you see, that was crazy because it was a husband who loved his wife who gave her the sop. It was a wife who loved her husband who gave him the sop. It was a, it was a, it was a term of, to allow someone else to feed you it was a close endearment. It was a term of great intimacy. And they said, who's going to, who's going to betray you, Jesus? And he dipped the bread and made the sop and he gave it to Judas. At that moment, there was still the opportunity for, Jesus, for Judas to recant and change his direction. But when Jesus saw in his eyes that they were fixed, he said, what you have to do, do quickly. But every time we come to communion, not every time, but many times, I'll make my own sop. Because I ain't perfect yet. And a lot of you aren't perfect either. But if Jesus was here, he would hand me a sop and say, I love you. I'm still reaching for you. I still desire the intimacy with you. I am not giving up on you, is what Jesus would say. He would look you in the eye and say, you are mine and I am yours. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 